coming into this room tonight after being out of this room most of the day. I really feel the, the impact of your practice and the silence and the kind of uh, palpable uh, feeling of stillness. And, it's, and I, I look around the room and I, um, all of you are, I can feel you in spite of probably dealing with a lot of torments of this or that, you're, um, you're brightening a lot and, uh, and can see a kind of openness and sweetness and kind of a, in spite of being a good sized group, you, you look kind of safe. And uh, maybe tells me something that you're feeling more safe within yourself. Um, and it's interesting how the, um, how opening to our, our human condition um, is so, um, is so normalizing. And I, I loved uh, Wes's phrase, perfectly human. It's just so much relief that comes from just seeing it the way it is. Seeing that we all have greed in our minds. Any of you have any today? <laughs> Wanting things to be different than the way they are. We all have hatred, aversion, ill will. We all have uh, delusion, things we don't want to look at or denial. Or, um, just don't see clearly confusion. And so this is how it is, and you can see just over the course of these few days, nothing's really changed, uh, except probably you feel a little safer with your own experience. You feel a little bit more accepting of your experience, allowing. And this really speaks to the direction of our practice, what uh, Joseph Goldstein calls liberation through non-clinging. Could reduce the whole of all of our practice to that simple phrase, liberation through non-clinging, which means non-contentiousness, not fighting with just how it is. In this moment as you listen, not straining, not struggling, just being purely open. And then of course that openness creates the possibility if necessary to uh, to respond to what's happening. Let's say you're open to feeling tension in your, I had a cramp in my foot. So, okay, I felt a cramp in my foot. And being open doesn't mean I just sit there and let my foot cramp. But openness to my cramping foot became the cause of rubbing my foot. And at this point, it's not cramping anymore. So it's all about as we've been mentioning, it's not so much what's happening, it's how it is that we meet what's happening. And from the beginning, we've simply been encouraging you to take refuge in the Dharma and how it is. Just to settle back into the moment, recognize that you're present with whatever it is, and usually at the beginning, this kind of insight, the first insights, as one of my teachers used to say, the first insights are usually bad news. <laughs> our bodies hurt, our minds 
dissatisfied, in a state of wanting, we're unrelaxed, we're convinced, it's a little narrative through our mind, is a convincing story that there's something wrong and something wrong with me. And we generally, when we come to a practice period, we actually stop, we realize we have a rather poor relationship with the present moment. As Eckhart Tolle puts it, the present moment has become just a place we pass through on our way to something else. It becomes an obstacle to getting where we're going, or it becomes the enemy. And this is what we discover. This is, the, this is our, our fertilizer. This is what we use. We are estranged from our bodies. This is why we offer the first few days at least try to put your mind in the same location as your body. Because as you've probably heard in countless Dharma talks in the past uh, about the character, and uh, I guess it was James Joyce, uh, Mr. Duffy, who lived a few feet from his body. And this is really true for all of us to a degree. And we see so clearly by just receiving the reality of the moment, how much, how much um, thinking is spawned by those, the engine of those hindrances that Wes spoke about. But we meet them with mindfulness. We meet them with awareness. This is actually the doorway. This is how we open. As Hafiz puts it, in his poem called, It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So in spite of the difficulty, this this turning the light on, even though the insights are bad news, begins a process of clarifying, of tenderizing, of opening our, our own, you could say, our own lotus petals, our own hearts, our own minds. As Rumi puts it, the cure for pain is in the pain. Good and bad are mixed. If you don't have both, you're not one of us. So we run from that, and we suffer, we open to it, and we start to feel safe again with ourselves, sufficient, okay. And we see as we open, as we keep settling back, as we keep unfurling our mind, we see, like the Rumi poem, The Guest House, that this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, we see completely unbidden, that flywheel, that water feel, waterfall of thoughts that goes flowing through our mind. The, the literally thousands, some say 65,000 thoughts every day come unbidden, arise in our mind and pass away. And it's said that the, of those 65,000, 90% are repeats from the day before. But as we turn toward this truth of this 
out of control, unbidden flow of thinking and the feelings that generate it and the feelings that are affected by, uh, uh, affected by this thinking, something else starts to happen. We start to brighten. And as I've mentioned several times before, this strange kind of alchemy occurs. The more that is noticed, no matter what it is, it seems like the brighter the mind gets. The more we become reoriented, recalibrated, reconnected to this immediate unfolding present. It seems that it's then all of a sudden we start to plug in again to this inexhaustible uh, resource, which is the only place that life is here and now. Because when we're noticing what it is that's happening, we are not lost in the past or in the future. Our bodies become energized. I know that all of you probably, maybe not so easily to easy to feel at the end of the day, but probably all of you are feeling a little bit more aliveness. And I also imagine that sounds are much more acute to you and smells are, are more vivid sights or everything is more clear. This is the natural clarifying of our of doors of perception, our senses. And this is just, as one teacher put it, we're simply by our moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness, we're as he says, brushing the dust of memory so that the clear mirror of our minds can be laid bare. The, so that the dust of, of pain, the dust of contraction, the dust of greed, hatred, and delusion can be seen. And, and the very brushing of the dust, the very moments of mindfulness, keep brightening, brightening the mirror opening, tenderizing the heart. I started, um, when I started to notice this effect, this kind of brightening effect, even though I was dealing with intense physical pain, I used to have a lot of knee burning. And I would notice the longer I would stay with it. I said, mentioned earlier that I sometimes felt like a kamikaze and it was there was so much ego and pride in it, it was really crazy but but there was something beneficial out of it something wholesome and I would pay attention to knee pain and this was the what I had fused so closely in my mind with suffering and I'd pay attention to it and it would start as this kind of monolithic force you probably have noticed that the pain that it, to end all pain the pain that will ruin your life and and that will always be there and then I'd pay attention to it. And it seemed like a kind of dull, solid presence. And I paid attention to it. And all of a sudden, it started to reveal its, its underlying nature. What started out as pain then started to be this much more discrete kinds of experiences. There was a kind of burning. There was streaming. There was squeezing. There was, um, there was um, vibrating. There was pulsing. And the more I paid attention to it, the, the happier my mind got, 
this was something, a revelation, that I could be feeling something so exqui ex exquisitely painful and my mind being happy and bright. And so I started reflecting on at least one way of reflecting about the, the Four Noble Truths, that, um, that first teaching that the Buddha gave when he, um, after his, his own awakening, after his own realization that he, that the, that the freedom that he had searched for, that the, that the refuge that he had searched for was none other than the very nature of his mind, the first thing he talked about was not how, how marvelous is this luminous nature of the mind. That was one of the things he talked about later. But what he talked about is, is the fact of our stress, the fact of our pain, the fact of what's difficult to bear, the fact of wanting what we don't have and not wanting what we do have. And he said, this is the diagnosis for our life. And this, um, this truth, this truth that there's stress, there's stress in change, there's stress in birth, there's stress in old age, there's stress in death, there's stress in not getting what you want, there's stress in loss, there's stress in grief, there's stress, there's stress the, whole way, the whole way through. He said, this must be welcomed, or this must be understood. One of our teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, changed the understood to welcomed, and that, it makes sense to me. Because when we welcome it, there's that, that magic that happens. We begin to, and how do we welcome it? Simply by saying, oh, this is stressful. This is painful. This is sadness. This is happiness. By meeting it, our minds stop, stop holding so tightly, stop pushing away, we stop contracting. Not only do we begin to, not only does our, our reactivity begin to loosen, our bodies begin to open, our hearts begin to tenderize, but we begin to see not just the generality of our human condition, but we start to see in a very specific way how our mind works. And that is, as the Tibetans call it, they call it, use this word emaho, and that's amazing, how it works. No one could ever really explain it. It's just, you know, we can say it's like this, like this, like this, but to actually experience the flow of consciousness with openness, it's got to, it has to put each of us, if we're really open into a, a place of awe and wonder. Emma Ho, how amazing. We see, as, he dis, as the Buddha described, and this is something that unfolds naturally, we see how much our mind inclines, and one way of talking about how, what Wes spoke of last night, that dissatisfaction and desire, we see how our mind inclines to, toward or is obsessed by what's next. How easily we enter into the world of time, the world of, of, um, of tomorrow. 
and we begin to see begin to see that all of this obsession with what's next, it starts by a very simple moment. A simple moment of one of our senses, and this takes slowing down and opening a little bit to how it is. As that clarifying takes place in our mind, we start to catch things a little bit more subtly. We see that every moment when something enters our eye, our ear, our nose, our tongue, it's felt in the body, or we think, every moment, whatever hits that sense produces, depending on conditioning, comes again uninvited, it's not personal, what comes automatically is a little tone of feeling, a little valence that's that gives us a feeling of pleasure or, or a little bit of um, pleasantness, a little bit of unpleasantness. And for some people, what gives a pleasant feeling, that, that the same experience that gives a pleasant feeling, like for some people, opening of the doors in the meditation hall, we got a few notes about that. For some people, that produces an immediate unpleasant feeling. For other people, that produces a pleasant feeling. Ah, more people are coming into the meditation hall. Now that's the story that comes next. But every moment of contact with one of the senses produces a little feeling. And most of the time this goes unnoticed, but we can begin to pay a little attention to this. When that pleasant feeling is triggered, it's quickly followed by liking. I like that. When an unpleasant feeling is, arises, and has, it's followed by, I don't like that. And when it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, it's followed by, usually we just don't notice it, we space out. It's not seen, invisible, or denying. But it's mostly I think it's easier to talk about the pleasant and the unpleasant. This little fleeting reaction, if we let ourselves begin to notice this, and it's subtle, but it's just an invitation. We start to notice that that liking and disliking and denying produces a little charge, it produces a little tension. I like. And in that little moment, it's almost as though we went from, in a very innocent way, we went from this um, wide open place of, of basic contentment, ease, instantaneously into this little vortex of liking and disliking, and that little charge produces a tiny little contraction and when that whole process goes unnoticed, it leads very quickly, that contraction spawns that, those 65,000 thoughts. It just spawns a narrative in our mind, a narrative that's related to what was experienced as pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, a narrative that is 
you could say, in hot pursuit of either getting rid of or getting more of. And that little narrative, not just little narrative, this profound drama that starts playing through our mind, literally in, in a matter of moments, creates a person, an imagined person called you. I think uh, Wes last night talked about it as sometimes it's how am I doing. And a lot of that narrative that goes through our mind is the how am I doing story. And the how am I doing story starts with these simple moments of, of contact, these simple moments of pleasant and unpleasant experience, liking and disliking, and it spawns this whole drama in our minds. An imaginary version of ourselves that is somehow dep being deprived of the secret to happiness. That once we've entered into that little world of our thoughts, we start list making, we start strategizing, we engage in a little project called, how am I going to become happy? Now, it's funny, as I look at you right now, I know that many of you have entered into these worlds maybe a hundred thousand different times today. But I look at you right now, and you probably have one of those little worlds that you really believe is the real you. And that you've, and, the, and that real you is the one who, um, who is not, not quite getting what you need or want or not quite who, you're, who you need to be or who you're supposed to be and has a little list, a little checklist of what will be necessary to finally be able to be happy in your life, to be okay. So as I, as I, as I think that you may have that, I also look at you and I imagine that if you if you just stay here for a moment, stay right here, and just for a few moments, don't um, suspend all of your ideas about yourself. So make no reference to the past, make no reference to the future. So that's this, after your last thought has ceased, and before the next one arises. What do you experience? Anybody willing to say? Happy. Happy. Content. Content. Softness. Softness. Tingling. Tingling. For many people, what they begin to realize is that the very relief that you were searching for was already here. But that your sense of dissatisfaction, the sense of not enough, sense of something wrong, something wrong with, with me, uh, really depended on that little virtual version of yourself that plays in your mind. That little self that what sometimes called selfing, 
that takes place. Of course, the selfing seems quite real because our bodies take the shape. There is that feedback loop. Every time we believe and enter into that world, our body goes into that little contraction, goes into that contraction that has a feeling that this, my sense of relief is suspended. And so our, our bellies get tight, our hearts get tight, our throats get tight, our heads get pressured, our, vorte our, our mind gets very narrow, and we're held there, hoping for the day when we can find, re find relief. It's all because we have innocently, sometimes innocently just from, from trauma, from, from the way we were spoken to, any number of ways, feeling different, whatever it might be, it produced that, that feeling of, um, of suspended well-being. We can begin to notice this whole process of creation of ourselves in our mind. And of course, that implies at the same time that in the process of noticing that, and just go back to what happens as we notice everything in our mind and body, in the process of noting, noticing that, we start to reclaim, start to re-inhabit our natural sense of being. Being ourselves. Not the idea of ourselves, but the direct experience of what or who we are outside, beyond these ideas even beyond, you could say, beyond the idea of being human. Because when we are really simply present, as I say that, I even want to remove the word present. When we're right here, remove the word here, it's really tough to use language. When we're here, It, unless I consult my memory, I'm just kind of checking it out as I sit here with you, unless I consult my memory, and this is in no way to deny the relative truth that I'm, I'm a man, and, or I'm serving in this role, and you're, you're yogis and I'm the person who's giving the Dharma talk, that's true in a, in a conventional way of looking at things. But when I'm simply present with you, not looking back and not looking ahead, not consulting my memory. I don't know if I'm a man or a woman. All I know is, I'm, is there's, there's wakefulness. I'm here. And when I'm here with you, I really feel in those moments when I have suspended my cherished identities the things that I hang my hat on for a moment, I feel all of a sudden a kind of melting away of the, of the separateness between us. I feel a little more connected. Connected to this body, connected to, to all of you. And I see that, yes, I am a man and I'm the Dharma teacher, but that's 
in some, in some way, that's secondhand information. It's the, what we would call the relative truth. The absolute truth, what is really possible for us to taste, and what we actually begin to fulfill by every moment that we're simply present, that ultimate truth is that um, we cannot be described. You cannot be described. So any way you have described yourself, whatever version of yourself has played in your mind, what plays in your mind, that one does not exist. And I say that with a lot of gusto because I know how tormenting it is to believe those, those self-stories. Our stories are marvelous. They, they have some approximation to our lives, and, it's be, and they're wonderful to tell as a, to ourselves and to others as a way of connecting. But they aren't the ultimate truth. As our, one of our teachers, Anagarika Munindra, put it, a thought of your mother is not your mother. Thought of yourself is not yourself. And, and most of you, before you had time to be afraid of this, <laughs> when you just sensed what it's like, which is, happens a lot in your life, it's not as though you're busy walking around saying, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so. We have lots of moments that get overlooked when we're not being anybody in particular. We're just being present. We function beautifully, much more beautifully, when, we have the, when we're a little bit um, less caught up in that, in that selfing process, in that self-referencing. So as Dujim Rinpoche says, in the, after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises, is there not a vivid clarity Uh, a brightness that has never, in you, that has never altered. He says, this is awareness. But here's the bad news. But it's also the good news. We don't stay just like this. He says, does not a thought arise? He says, this is, um, this is a part of it. This is just an, a feature of awareness, thoughts, as, as Wes was saying last night. But he says, if these thoughts are not recognized as they arise, they spread out into ordinary thinking. He says, this is called the chain of delusion, because it's in this chain that we are entranced into that imaginary version of ourselves. And that's the one that the Buddha, the, his compassion was so um, concerned about us um, seeing, seeing it for what it is, that cause of suffering, and ultimately abandoning it, abandoning it in the sense of not believing it. Because you can see the fruit in our lives of being carried along on that, in that internal drama that says, this moment's not quite enough. And the, the, the best is um, today, the, the best is tomorrow or next year. 
all the ways that we overshoot, all the ways that we lose our sense of presence, lose our sense of safety, sufficiency, enoughness, all the ways that we run from silence, go out of ourselves in search. We end up like our friend Spence, from, who was featured in Outside Magazine in 1998, Spence, who put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. We end up being shopaholics, or wantaholics, or waitaholics, hopeaholics. And then, of course, because our sense of well-being gets so fixated on what's next, we become afraid. We become worried because then, then what, what is it true about the, about the future as it plays to the mind? Whatever that is, it hasn't happened yet. And there's always the chance that it won't. And so it, it makes us really nervous. And all of this is a kind of entrancing self-journey about the imagined version, uh, self-journey away from now into an imaginary future, and nothing has really happened. We've never left this immediate present. This whole drama has happened in our minds. This is why we often describe it as toppling forward. Our bodies form like this, and we're pretty soon we're, we're leaning. I think the, the American posture is neck forward or head forward. This is a, just a, an expression of this mind that is fixated on the future. So we end up like Spence. He says, to be one with everything, you've got to have one of everything. He says, that's why I have a new Ford Ranger, so he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop. So we have all this, you know, of course, this is very cynical, <laughs> but we have this sincere desire for relief. But unfortunately, as, as the desiring mind and the identity that gets formed around desire uh, keeps showing us that, um, that, that whatever that thing or that place, it, it just doesn't quite deliver. And here's Spence continuing. He says, so he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Nature by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door pickup truck. <laughs> he says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. <laughs> I think he's really happy. Just a little bit more hard-hitting view of this addictive mentality that we can begin to notice, and the noticing of it is actually is a couple things. In the noticing, we let go. In the noticing, we brighten. In the noticing, we return to presence. We can be, we can wander, as one teaching says from uh, Tibetan Lama, we can wander a long time confused, but that moment that we wake up to where we are, moment that we wake up to the moment, oh, this is the wanting mind. This is the aversive mind. 
This is the waiting mind. That moment we've returned to the top of the mountain. We've, we've returned to exactly what we're looking for. This may remind you of yourself, your version. It's a fellow who climbs up to the mountain and to see a guru. And he says, hey, guru, I've always wondered what you guys do up here on the mountain all day. Well, at sunrise, I get up, eat a handful of parched corn, and start meditating. And then at noon, I eat another handful of parched corn and go back to meditating until dark when I stop and eat a little more parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? Espresso, chocolate-covered raisins, <laughs> pizza, french fries, hot dogs, banana splits, pancakes, potato chips. This person does not live in California. It's a whole, it's a whole different fantasy diet here, if you haven't noticed. Sogil Rinpoche describes this movement of our mind, this way that we create a sense of self, uh, called, that sense of self called Sakyaditi. The Buddha called it um, uh, a view of self. And he also called it avijja, or um, wrong view. <laughs> Taking that momentary experience of a sight, a sound, and smell, and taste, and Wrapping, around, wrapping, wrapping it around an imagined person and then literally entering into that, um, that mistaken perception of who and what we are. This is Sogil talking about the effects on our life and our culture. He says, sometimes I think that the achievement of modern culture, greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is this endless loop that we get into selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it trains, it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. An 18th century lama says, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but only lead to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. I don't know why I get such a, hit, a kick out of that. I'm so happy somebody's saying it so clearly. And of course, it, it hits me right in, in um, my own 
addictive patterns, as it may you. But it is, of course, out of innocence, out of love for ourselves, that we fall into the traps that it's so ingenious at setting for us, as Sogil said. We all, in our deep sincerity, want to find relief. But we have just had what the Buddha called a, a misplaced faith in what actually gives us that sense of relief. And so in the second noble truth, there is a cause of suffering. That cause is that, that deep tendency to want things to be different than the way they are, that expresses itself as this intense desire for the next sense, sense experience, expresses itself as this intense state of becoming, of, of trying to get from here to there, always leaning toward that future that never arrives, because as Alan Watts puts it, because time is always now. It expresses itself as well in the desire to shut things off, the, from the mild version of just wanting to sleep and turn it all off to the more, to the more um, serious version of the desire for annihilation, to just end life completely. And this is the, the height of, our, of a kind of clinging and grasping at, at what's next. Um, that expresses itself both in intense aversion and in grasping. So the Buddha invited us, the teachings invite us, to really notice the way that the sense of self is formed in our minds and then how our bodies feel as they as the impact of those views um, get reinforced. And the way that they get reinforced is by that process of, of complication that our mind uh, engages in, what the Buddha called papancha, or proliferation, and how these simple six sense experiences, really that's all that's ever happened in any of our lives. There have basically been six experiences seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, consciousness of these rising and passing. But out of that, our mind has just generated this, this whole um, conceptual version, and then a, a different kind of conceptual version, an elaborate one that plays in our mind. And this elaboration that goes on in our mind uh, is called papancha. I got this uh, translation from, uh, from our dear Anna, a translation of the word papancha, the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagine experiences or objects. The second one, the propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition the propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an infusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. And the Buddha described three different ways, and we've, I've spent a lot of time already talking about the elaborate uh, ways that we do it um, through what he called tanha papancha, which is the, the 
proliferation or complication of things through the, in the world, creating ourself in the world of desire. And I had so much papancha, so much proliferation of thought on some of my early retreats around desire. I'm also uh, of those three common character types. I'm also the, the grasping or greed type, the, the wanting type. And, and to the extent where on one retreat, I had the image, a very simple image, sitting, minding my own business, had this, the image, and it was, of course it was associated with the time of year. It was late November, and I, was, I grew up, as, as we did in the state of Nebraska, where the religion of the state is the, um, is the state football team. <laughs> and in the midst of a three-month practice period, sitting there minding my own business, an image comes. And before I knew it, that image had proliferated into an elaborate plan to somehow leave the retreat <laughs> and I, ultimately that little papancha, that little spinning out, it led me in a, I won't tell you the whole story, but somebody did volunteer to actually drive me and I ended up 40 miles away in a motel room watching a football game. <laughs> <laughs> two, mo two months into a three month retreat. That's what you call being blinded by, by. So we have to respect the potency of it. Many, many of you may have had some little version of, of this uh, on, the, on the pleasant side with what we call the, especially for you new people, what we call the VR, the Vipassana romance, where there's somebody that produces that little pleasant feeling and then there's a liking and off you go into, into romance and mating and dating and marriage and divorce and uh, family and but all within the span of 30 seconds. <laughs> and of course, that can really take off, and pretty soon it's, it's quite painful because we've, our bodies have formed around that, that drama, and it creates a convincing view that something's got to be different. This moment's only the place I have to bear until I can get to my beloved in whatever form. The best reverse side of the tanha papancha, which is tanha papancha includes the aversive version where there's, we also have that on the retreat, the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, where somebody triggers a slight irritation and before you know it, the mind just goes off and that becomes, person becomes the reason for all of your misery and, and then you're suspended waiting for that to, to go away. And all of that is tormenting to our mind. Yet we can see, oh, this is the, this is the self around around aversion. I've become the, the one who's got a problem. Here's a, an example I got from a, this was a talk given, was used in a talk given by uh, a colleague named Lee Brasington, where he talked about a woman who wanted some, he, she wants some potatoes for a meal she's cooking. So she sends her husband to the marketplace to buy potatoes. As he walks out the door, she calls after him, be sure to get a good price. So all the way to the marketplace, the man is thinking about potatoes and what he'll have to pay. If he buys the very best potatoes, he knows he'll have to pay more than if he buys the lesser quality potatoes. On the other hand, the lesser quality potatoes are just that, not so good. In fact, he knows he'll have to be very careful in buying other than top price potatoes because the seller might try to stick him with a bad potato, even a rotten potato. When he thinks of someone cheating him by giving him a rotten potato, he gets really mad. 
Why do people have to be so greedy and stick me with a rotten potato? Just at the point, he reaches the stall of the potato seller and screams at him. You can keep your rotten potatoes. And he, and he walks off. So briefly, so we have the, the proliferation around complication around wanting and not wanting. We also have a lot of complication around um, what the Buddha called uh, views and opinions, ditti papancha, View, and particularly self um, sakya ditti, self views. All about it's all about me. Everything is self-referenced. It's all about how I'm doing. I'm either doing great. I'm not doing so great. I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm becoming someone marvelous, or I'm not becoming someone marvelous. I'm it's it's a preoccupation with this with this view. And then, of course, we form a lot of self around um, views and opinions about others, views and opinions about the world, how much selfing there is and contraction there is around political views, religious views. Uh, you know, even people who've been, not even, but people who've been practicing the Dharma, for people have been arguing about views about Dharma from time immemorial, from whether whether nowadays it's you know, open awareness versus narrow awareness. It's all kinds of things. We can become, we can become in, in a sense, incarnated as, as this person who's really stuck in particular views. And we both become irritating to ourselves and irritating to others. But it also, they also torment us a lot, our views about ourselves, because again, that, that whole game that our mind plays, trying to find the right self, trying to find, it's all based on an imaginary version that, um, and because it's tethered to thoughts, it's very insecure. And so we're, we're constantly trying to, um, to be okay. And Wei Wu Wei puts it like this, he says, why are you so unhappy? He says, because 99% of everything you do and say is for yourself. And there isn't one, at least not in the absolute sense. Of course there is, but here you are, full, vivid beauty, not anything like the narrative that goes floating through your mind most of the time. This is from Calvin and Hobbes. This is just, you can get a sense of his own sakyaditi. Hobbes says, aren't you supposed to be doing your homework now? I quit doing homework. Homework is bad for my self-esteem. <laughs> it, it is? Sure, it sends the message that I don't know enough. All that emphasis on right answers makes me feel bad when I get them wrong. So instead of trying to learn, I'm just concentrating on liking myself the way I am. <laughs> and Hobbes says, your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus. <laughs> Please, let's call it informationally impaired. You know, so we have to have just the right descriptor for ourselves. And we have from a cartoon the checklist to feeling pathetic. Choose, and the different caption, first one, choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Number two, make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. 
Examine your face closely in the mirror. Notice all the flaws. <laughs> Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. <laughs> Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. <laughs> Resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. You know, we can laugh about it, but in some ways, it's, it's not that funny. And it's, but the good news is we can start to notice this. And every time we notice it, we step off of that wheel. When we, then we start to understand Rumi when he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking, of me thinking, live in silence, flow down and down in ever widening rings of being. Every moment that we are simply present to what is happening in our minds, we, we, we let go into that indefinable wideness that has the quality of presence and wakefulness, and goodwill flows from that. And the, really another version of Sakyaditi, self-view, that in the form of, of the complication in our minds is, is called manapapancha, or the, the complication around and this is maybe, for many of us, the most tormenting thing. I know it was for me in my, my early, especially my early years of um, being in this role. Mana papancha is, um, mana means conceit or pride. And in, the, in this particular kind of complication that our mind generates, it's, um, the word conceit really is um, more, um, translated as the comparing mind. It's pride of being equal to, pride of being better than, or the pride that comes from being less than. And this, this, all the, the stories that we say. And it's so, we get so diminished, have so much, the in, we lose so much of our sense of enoughness and presence by not recognizing that particular version of ourselves in the comparing mind. And so in our practice, we start noticing it. Ah, this is comparing mind. And in that moment, we unstick. We, we return to what the Buddha called Lokutra Sutta. Lokutra, unstuck from the world, beyond the power and influence of what it is that's going through our minds. That moment that we can notice it. And the very noticing keeps strengthening, keeps brightening our our faith and our sense of presence. So again, the Buddha said, with these causes of, of dukkha, the second truth, grasping at becoming, of being different, grasping at pleasure, this must be seen through, this must be abandoned. And it is abandoned in the moment of seeing. At that same passage from Dujim Rinpoche, he says, if the thought is, is recognized, it liberates itself. It's not something you have to do. You simply have to notice. Not so easy to notice thoughts, but we can begin if, as we incline, as we become curious, start to notice, what's in my mind right now? What am I thinking about? What was I thinking about? The comparing mind is um, a hard one.
This is from Ed Brown. He says, when I started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I'd made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, and one was from Pillsbury. <laughs> For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough on spoon in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on a corner of the counter and it popped open. You, then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Is that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Compared to canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another. But to me, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. I, for some reason, I'm stunned right now because I know that you are all perfectly good biscuits. <laughs> and I'm afraid that you believe the thoughts that you're not. And so, I, so our practice is really to start to check that out in present time, in real time, not secondhand. My teacher Punjaji used to say, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. Just check it out. So I'll read on. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury, leave it to Beaver. People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day, a shifting in, came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh, my word. I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant. In fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience how much more complex, multifaceted, how unfathomable. A thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As Zen students, we went, spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew that a bit, what a Bisquick Zen student looked like, calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends says, was looking good. We've all done it, tried to attain perfection, tried to look good as a husband, a wife, a parent. Yes, I have it together. I'm not greedy or jealous or angry. You're the one who does those things. And if you didn't do them first, I wouldn't do them either. You started it. 
Don't peek behind my cover, we say, and if you do, keep it to yourself. Well, to heck with it. I say, wake up and smell the coffee. How about savoring some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? So this speaks to the possibility fulfilled every moment of the end of suffering. There is a cessation, moment after moment, an opportunity to release that tight fist of clinging to those identities. And when we do, you can feel for yourself. It's not theoretical. Space is there, open and inviting, not to be found any place else but in this unfolding present right now. So let's sit for a moment. beings realize their true home. Thank you for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.